You can have a seat in the room, have a seat at home. I didn't think I was going to have to get used to this again this quickly, but here we are. But grateful nonetheless for the provision God has made for us to still meet in some way. And that Holy Spirit that is doing the illuminating work is everywhere. So he can meet you right in your living room, wherever you are today, to help you in this time where we worship God through preaching. You know, Nehemiah 8 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I've read the chapter several times over the years. I have often quoted Nehemiah 8.10. I love what the Bible says, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. But as I was studying this text this week, in the context of preaching through all the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, something new stood out to me in this passage of Scripture, specifically verses 1 through 12. Something I'm excited to share with you today as First Baptist Church of Irving. And it has to do specifically with some direction that Nehemiah gives to the people of God in verses 9 through 12. But before we get to those verses, let me tell you what's happening right before, because context, as as always, is necessary. As we saw last week in chapter 8, verse 1, the people of God have gathered. And almost as soon as they gather in the flow of the text, they begin to ask and, and sort of demand that Ezra bring out the book of the law, the book of Moses, to read it over them. And it's an incredible scene. And here's how I imagine it. It, it reminds me of at the end of a concert. You know, I haven't had many experiences where I've seen a crowd demand something of a performer or someone who is leading them. But every time I've gone to a concert, at the end of the concert, as the artist leaves the stage, there's this desire among the people to have more. And so what do they do? They begin to shout out, encore, encore encore. And the artist typically responds by coming out and playing a few more songs. And, and that image is driven into my mind as I think about what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 8. The people have gathered, and this is before the concert, by the way, and they, there's such an expectation of what God is going to do among them. They collectively begin calling out to Ezra, bring out the book. Bring out the book. They want more of the word of God. They are demanding Ezra come and read from God's word. And they are doing this almost certainly because of Ezra's faithful ministry in teaching the word of God. You see, this gathering is the result of a command that God gave in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 to 13. And in that passage, Moses tells the people that God wants them to gather together in a unique way every seven years. They are to come together right before the Feast of Booths, something we'll talk about more next week, and read the whole book of the law over the people during the, the year of release, or what the Bible says earlier in Deuteronomy 15, the sabbatical year. And here's what Moses says to them from the text. Again, Deuteronomy 31. At the end of every seven years... At the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing, 
Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So guess when this gathering in Nehemiah chapter 8 is? We see at the end of chapter 7, verse 73. The priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, some of the people, temple servants, Israel, live in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the seventh month, the people of Israel were in their towns. The seventh month, right before the Feast of Booths. And because of Ezra's faithful teaching for some 13 years now, since he returned to the land of promise, the people of God know what's supposed to happen because they have been reading the law. They have been studying God's revelation to them. And so they ask, for Ezra to come and do exactly what God commanded them to do through his servant Moses. And that's what Ezra does. It's a pretty cool moment. The leaders of Israel gather around Ezra. See that in verse four, he ascends a wooden platform made just for this moment. And he stands over the people of God. Remember, some 50,000 people. And he begins to declare what has been written. Verses 5 through 8, we see that, that Ezra blesses God. He teaches the people with the help of the Levites the, the intricacies of the covenant that God has made with his people. And the people, as they understand and comprehend exactly what it is that God has said to them, agree with what is being said, and they worship. Stunning, right? But then something interesting happens in verse 9. The worship of God suddenly turns to weeping. The people of God are, are, are broken. They're, they're overwhelmed. They're in a state of desperation and mourning to the point where the Levites have to begin calming them down. And then Nehemiah has to come out before them and address them as their Leader, and listen what he has to say to them. Do not mourn. Do not weep. This is in verses 9 through 12. For this day is holy to your God. Go your way and drink sweet wine. Some of you are going to be amening that too much at home, and I want you to wrestle with that in your heart. He says, share the blessings that you have with others. Do not stay in your grief because there is joy to be found in this day. And the joy of the Lord is to be your strength. And as I studied our text this week, I could not get past this moment because I've been in this moment. And my guess is many of you have been in this moment as well. A moment when you hear the law of God, when you hear the expectation of God and you become overwhelmed and feel stuck in your grief, stuck in your unworthiness because you are feeling the crushing weight of your sin. 
And what I want us to do this morning is to take a cue from Nehemiah and consider how the Bible helps us get out of moments like this such that we as the people of God can truly live in joy, the joy that God desires for us. And I believe there are some people amongst us who need to hear this message this morning, to be freed from despair and to walk in gospel hope. And I'm using that word gospel hope on purpose because what I see in Nehemiah 8 verses 9 to 12 is a picture of the work of the gospel. Even before the gospel was finished being written. And I believe that God can use this text in us as a people today, even though we are scattered, to help us see how the gospel is the key for us to move beyond grief into gratitude, beyond condemnation into celebration, to move from regret to rejoicing. I'm hoping that many of you want to walk this road with me today. So, Here's our central question that we want to try to answer from the text. How does this passage, Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12 specifically, help us paint a picture of the gospel? How does Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12, paint a picture of the gospel for us to help us in moments when we risk losing our joy because of our sin and the weight of the expectation that God has placed Upon us. There are three ways I think this passage helps us understand the gospel in greater ways today. Firstly, it reminds us, this passage, of the purpose of the law. This passage reminds us of the purpose of the law. At first, when I when I read the account in 8, 9 through 12, what was happening here, I was surprised. This should be a joyous occasion, and yet it's overwhelming grief that the people of God are feeling. They are, they're mourning as if they're at a funeral. It's like a death has happened as they hear the law read over them. But the Holy Spirit quickly checked my surprise by reminding me of Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. And I want us to read that passage together. Here's what the Word of God says. What then? Are the Jews any better off? And the question is fully understood in this way. Are the, are the Jews better off because they have the law? The very law that they were reading here in Nehemiah chapter 8. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They, they use their tongues to deceive. Their venom, the venom of asps, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of 
sin. Knowledge of sin. Notice what Paul is saying here. The law's chief purpose was to expose sin. How does it do that? Well, it does it in three ways. The law begins, or, or God through the law reveals himself, or at least, at least begins to reveal himself. He reveals his nature, his character. In the law, we see that God is holy. In the law, we see that God is just. In, in the law, that we, we see that God is faithful. We begin through the law, through the revelation of God, through the law, to, to begin to see more of who God is. And secondly, God also reveals his holy standard for his people through the law. Basically, he says to the people who, whom he gives his covenant relationship to, if you are going to be my people, Here's what you have to do. You have to begin to look like me. Here's who I am. I'm attaching myself to you. And here's what you need to look like in order to stay connected to me. He gives them a, a holy and righteous standard. That is the law. It reveals the character of God. And then it demands, in as much as it is possible, for the people of God to begin to look like this God who is revealing himself to them. But then here's what the law also does. It reveals the inadequacy of man to meet that holy standard. Even in the law, there's provision for failure because God knows the requirements are too much for us on our own to meet. And in that light, the reading of the law of God is devastating. There is a death there, separation between us and God. Listen, when we realize why we were created to worship God and enjoy him forever through intimate relationship, and then we further realize that there's no possible way that we will be able to see that purpose realized in our own strength, it's devastating to see all that God is and all that we are not, and that gap, seemingly insurmountable. Nothing we can do can cross the divide. We need to be holy, but we're not. We need to be righteous, but we're not. And we will be separated from the one thing, the one person, that can give us all that we long for. Well, guys, how could we not be broken? How could we not weep? And that's what the law was ultimately meant to do, to expose this great need. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. The purpose of the law was to expose sin. But it also sets the stage for the coming of Christ. Another way that this passage in Nehemiah chapter 8 prepares us for the gospel, painting a picture of the gospel for us. It reminds us of the purpose of the law to reveal sin, but it also points us to the glory of Christ. Yes, even Nehemiah 8 is ultimately concerned with Jesus. Let's go back to Nehemiah just for a moment and consider Nehemiah's direction. He sees the effect of the law 
as it is read upon the people. But what does he do? Do you remember? He says to them, verse 9, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, because they were weeping. He said to them, verse 10, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. What does Nehemiah do here? He tries to to shift the focus of God's people. He points them to God's saving action on their behalf. He reminds them that God has chosen them. He reminds them that God has rescued him. How does he do that? He does that by calling attention, calling their attention to what that day is supposed to represent. He says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Eat fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord your God. Remember what this day is about, and that will shift your focus from your insufficiencies to God's complete sufficiency. Well, what is this day about? Well, remember when we began, we talked about this day. It was a gathering directed by God in Deuteronomy during the seventh month at the end of seven years to help remind the people of God of his faithfulness and teach them to fear him in a proper way and to give context to all the celebrations they were about to undertake. A holy convocation, a gathering, which was meant to prepare them for the coming day of atonement wherein their sins would be forgiven by sacrifice, at least temporarily so. Followed then by the festival of booths, wherein they would remember God's constant provision in the wilderness. And then all of that leading to the commemoration of the sabbatical year. The year of release, again outlined in Deuteronomy 15, 1-6, wherein all the debts that the Israelites owed to one another would be completely forgiven. Everything they owed would be wiped away. Their slate clean. And the reading of the the law of God over the people was meant to inform everything that they were about to do. To be reminded of God's faithfulness in every single aspect of their ceremonial practice so that it would lead to worship. So Nehemiah says, this day is supposed to be a day of rejoicing. Don't just focus on your shortcoming, friends, but rather focus on God's gracious actions towards you in the midst of your shortcomings. Israel, God has called you. He has assembled you. He has formed you, knowing full well what you are. He knew that you would not be able to meet this standard, and so he made a way for your failures to be covered, sacrificed. That's what we're going to do on the Day of Atonement. He has shown you his love for you, even in your neediest state, by providing for you over and over again in miraculous 
ways. That's what we're going to remember at the Feast of Booths. He has made a way for everything that you owe to be forgiven, to have your slate white clean. He's made a new start possible. And that's what we're going to celebrate in this sabbatical year. So you should rejoice. You should rejoice because of God's faithfulness to you, even in the midst of your failures. And I hope you see how Nehemiah's words here to the people of God point us to an even greater hope as God's people on this side of Christ. Yes, our shortcomings are great. And every time I sit before the word of God, I see more of them. It makes me want to weep. It leads me to despair. Without God's help, we should be in a place of despair. We should be in a place of mourning. But friends, God has called us to himself knowing full well who we are. God has made greater provision for our sin and given a, a greater once and for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. It's done. It's finished. And God has promised to care for us as his people, leading us through this wilderness until he brings us to the greater land of promise. And most incredibly of all, God has paid our debts. He paid the ultimate price so that our indebtedness to God could be forgiven. Our slate wiped clean by the blood of Christ. And now we can be made new. Listen to how Paul continues his writing in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Well, 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, it's an important transition. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath bearer by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, listen, of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's Paul saying there? Well, what was once a source of despair, the law, is now a gateway to hope as it now informs our understanding of all that God has done for us in Christ. It shows our great need, yes, but it also makes way for God's incredible provision for us in Jesus. 
So that what condemned us has now paved the way for something that saves us, someone who saves us. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He was righteous according to God's standard. And he took our place on the cross. He bore our punishment. He paid our debt so that we could be released. Walking in that fellowship with God that we were designed for. And that should lead us to joy. That's the third way this passage pictures the gospel for us. What is the end of the gospel? It is joy, full joy. When we focus on the faithful work of God in the midst of our neediness, our sorrow is turned to joy, our mourning into dancing. Jared, what are you doing? Talking about wine and dancing in a Baptist church. I'm just preaching the text, friends. It's celebration. It's joy what we see happening when God saves us as his people. Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he has called us as his own, why are we going to doubt what God has said? And we need this joy, friends. The joy that comes from focusing on the saving work of God because the joy of the Lord is our strength. A joy that can only be found in God through Christ. So important for us. Listen, the enemy wants to steal our joy because when we don't have joy, we are weak. He wants you to focus on your sin and forget God's provision because we'll be weak. We'll be in despair. We'll be in mourning and of no use to the gospel work that God has called us to. But, oh, if we continue to be captured, overwhelmed by something greater, the work of God on our behalf, that joy will stir something within us that nothing in this world can contain, not even COVID-19. Our lips will have to declare the goodness of God to everyone around us who is looking for the same thing. So friends, when you begin to feel weary because of your shortcomings, just look at God's provision for us. Look at what he has done for us and rest in that. Rejoice in that. Don't take it for granted. Don't abuse it. But let it lead you to greater love for this God who has so loved you. And here's the challenge. Spread the wealth. Spread the wealth. I, I love what Nehemiah says here as he's talking about Again, eating the fat and drinking the sweet wine. And listen to what he says. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. And that just, again, encourages me about the gathering of God's people, right? Because there are days we're going to gather together. Some of you may be in your homes today, and you look like you have anything to give. But I bet there's a brother or sister around you who's got some joy to spare. Because God has given them abundant joy. And it's so important for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the people of God, 
when we see the people around us, our family of faith, struggling in their sin, to share with them some of the, the bounty, some of the abundance that God has given to us so that we all may be a people strengthened by the joy of the Lord. So eat that fat, drink that sweet wine, and share it with brothers and sisters who are in need so that when we are together, we rejoice as we should because this day demands that kind of response. So, where are you today, church family? Are you in despair? Maybe some of you are justifiably in despair watching at home today because you don't have the hope of Christ. You haven't partaken of the saving work that God has provided for you by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as salvation. Would you do that today? Would you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you, who are a lawbreaker, could have your debt paid, your slate wiped clean? You are not good enough to meet God's holy and righteous standard, and that will lead to separation from him for all of eternity if you are not in Christ. So step into Christ today. If you are in Christ, are you more overwhelmed by your sin or God's provision for you in your sin? Where do you sit on the spectrum of what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8? Are you constantly in a state of grieving and mourning over your sin or have you captured a picture of something greater? God's provision for you in the midst of it. Listen to the words of Nehemiah. Do not mourn, O people of God. Do not weep inappropriately. There's a place for that. Temporarily, as we confess our sin and we, we recognize what it demanded of God on our behalf. But at some point, our focus needs to change to rejoicing in the work of God. Let this day do what it was designed to do in your heart and lead you out of that place of despair into a place of joy. And let's be a people when we gather as the church who rejoice greatly. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our enemy may not want us to learn this lesson, but we are going to make sure as a people that we don't forget what God has done. And we allow those reminders to stir our hearts to love him and rejoice in him. Because when we do that, we are a strong people ready for the work that God has called us to. Wherever you are, your homes, living rooms, the few who are amongst us here in the church today, would you bow your heads?
Spend some time asking the Lord to help you know how to respond today to the word of God. Do you need your slate wiped clean? If you have, are you rejoicing? Let the law do its work. Expose your sin, but let it also point you to the fulfillment of that work in Jesus. And may we as a people not stop rejoicing because of what God has done for us in Christ. That's a hope, that's a joy that will sustain us in any circumstance. Father, I pray that you are honored today by the preaching of your word. I'm praying that the reach of this message would be beyond our ability, that it would be a true function of the work of your spirit. And that in homes all around our city, all around our area, God, you would begin convicting of sin, turning people's hearts to a greater focus, to you, who are the ultimate source of our joy. May we remember your faithfulness today to us. May we remember your provision for us today. And may we leave stronger as your people because we have rejoiced. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Let's do some of that rejoicing right now. Let's stand wherever you are and let's sing together.